everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 95. Hello, Stephen. Hi, David. How's it going? Hey there. <laughs> let me get this. Let me get my anti. This is psychologist Stephen Lewandowski. Oh, I'm Stephen Lewandowski. I'm a professor of cognitive science at the University of Bristol. Stephen studies how people do and do not change their minds when presented with challenging evidence. Well, much of my work at the moment deals with how people process misinformation, that is to say, how people respond to information that they initially think is true, but that then turns out to be false. How do people respond to those corrections? Um, has, has your phone been ringing off the hook, uh, thanks to our new uh, epistemic chaos? Uh, um, well, epistemic chaos is uh, putting it nicely. Yes, <laughs> I, I've been busy, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe maybe this is your chance for you and your uh, like-minded colleagues to save the world. That's what I'm hoping. Well, we're working on it. We're writing <laughs> papers right, left, and center, but, uh, and, you know, opinion pieces and all that, but uh, it's obviously very difficult. In the mid-2000s, Stephen and his colleagues were one of several groups of social scientists who became fascinated with the public's perception of the war in Iraq, the biggest news story of the post-9-11 world. Some officials and some members of the media during the war in Iraq had claimed or suggested that the United States was justified in its actions because it had evidence of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, which turned out to be false. Stephen, like many psychologists and other social scientists, became fascinated with how a portion of the public reacted to this information, with social media now providing this new access to public opinion at an unprecedented level of speed and fidelity, it became clear to him and others that people were not simply accepting those corrections. Prior research had suggested that in those cases, when there are corrections being made, people would not update their memories. With this in mind, Stephen conducted a study during that war in Iraq period in which he presented members of the public in Germany, Australia, and the United States with actual items from the war, from the news, 
as it unfolded. And we differentiated those news items into things that were true and other things that used to be true but were then corrected and other things that we just made up. His team soon discovered that in each country there existed a group of people who lived in a separate reality, people guided by a different consensus as to what was and was not true, what was and was not false. Well, it turns out that um, in the United States, people who um, knew that things were corrected and turned out to be false later on, they still believed in that. Now, if you recall from the last episode, when people can't control the slant of the information arriving in their minds from the outside world, they tend to engage in motivated skepticism, a sort of reverse confirmation bias or a disconfirmation bias in which people accept without question information that confirms their beliefs, but scrutinize and challenge that which does not. Stephen's team found that people with existing beliefs that the war had been fought over weapons of mass destruction simply were not skeptical of information that supported that belief. So they knew that it was false, but they believed it. And we found that fascinating. And it turns out that in the other countries, in Australia and Germany, that wasn't the case. People there, when they knew something was false, they no longer believed it. So we thought, what's going on here? Digging a little deeper, they found that people's country of origin, where they currently lived, that was not the causation. It was just a correlation. It was their level of skepticism concerning that one fact that mattered, whether there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And as you might imagine, people who lived in the United States were just less likely as a population to harbor that skepticism than people who lived in other regions, thanks to a whole set of factors and vectors involving group identity, politics, what media they consumed, and so on. A little later on, Stephen attended a climate conference in Copenhagen, and there he said he saw what appeared to be the exact same behavior. People who were selectively skeptical of the facts, but this time around climate change. And once again, he applied his research to the phenomenon, and once again, he found the same factors at play. It became apparent that that so-called skepticism was in fact not skepticism, but it was denial of uh, established, well-established science that was in all likelihood politically or ideologically motivated. And that's when I started studying denial and why it is that people cling to beliefs that are not supported by evidence. And Why do they continue to cling to those beliefs even if contrary evidence is presented? The reason I wanted to talk to Stephen is because once he realized that his fellow scientists were facing a pushback on some facts and not others, he knew that they were battling motivated skepticism and the backfire effect that it generates. Both factors that scientists outside of psychology aren't used to dealing with and therefore have not developed good strategies for communicating with the public with those pitfalls in mind. Scientists live in a world where facts usually work on people with some struggle. 
but they still work. And that's not because they're smarter. People are people everywhere, and scientists are just as prone to bias and motivated reasoning and all the rest. But as the AI researcher Eliza Yudkowsky once wrote, science is smarter than scientists. And so the system they live in provides a framework for arguing that gives them the freedom to dump raw data and empirical evidence in the laps of those who disagree with them. Once you move into the public realm, though, that strategy does not work as well. So Stephen, along with science writer and soon-to-be cognitive psychologist John Cook, literally wrote an instruction manual for dealing with the backfire effect. And they call it the Debunking Handbook. And the Debunking Handbook basically originated from that history. My interest in skepticism and the realization that that is a great thing that enables you to differentiate truth and falsehood and how that's so different from the denial of climate science or other scientific propositions, which is driven usually by ideology or political motives, and which is impervious to correction by facts. So that's the crown story. My name is David McCraney, and this is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. And this is the third episode in our three-part series about the backfire effect. The first episode dealt with its neurological underpinnings, the second with the effect itself and why it happens, and this episode is about how to combat it. And Stephen Lewandowski is one of the go-to scientists when it comes to that question, because he and Cook, they really literally wrote the instruction manual. But in addition to his advice, you're also going to hear advice from David Redlosk, whose research answers the question, do people ever get it? Do people who are engaging in motivated reasoning, who are under the spell of the backfire effect, do they have a breaking point? His answer, and the advice from Stephen Lewandowski, after this commercial break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns and I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before and this helped. Now a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time and the question is time for what? If our time was unlimited how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire 
and you will get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing. Measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, You can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. 
My name is David McRaney, and this is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. As you may recall from the previous two episodes, people often not only reject attitude inconsistent information, which is, you know, facts that challenge their beliefs, but in doing so, they become even more convinced they were right all along. In other words, corrections often backfire, making people more wrong, not less. And this, in psychology and political science, is known as the backfire effect. If dumping evidence into people's laps just makes their beliefs stronger, would we be better off trying some other tactic? Or does the truth eventually win? Do people ever come around? Well, that was the question political scientists David Redlosk and his colleagues set out to answer in a simulated presidential election in which people would gradually learn more and more terrible things about their preferred candidate. Meet David Redlosk. I'm David Redlosk. I am a professor of political science at the University of Delaware, where I also chair the Department of Political Science and International Relations. In Redlosk's election study, before it began, each subject answered questionnaires about their political beliefs, and then these subjects registered as either Republican or Democrat. They faced four candidates of their own party, so it was a primary election, candidates they had never seen before, but who were designed to look very realistic. The candidates needed to be fake, so the subjects wouldn't have any preconceived notions about their characters. But they also, these subjects, they needed to learn about these fake candidates, so the researchers offered a monumental amount of information about their positions on 27 different issues. Literally hundreds of pieces of information they could learn about these candidates. They also made sure that all the candidates were in the same party. That way, any partisan effects could be minimized. The reason we did a primary was to get partisanship out of the way. Partisanship as a, you know, is pretty powerful, and we were really interested in how do people um, process this information if we can keep them focused on in this case, a primary, their own party, so partisanship's not a factor. Once the subjects indicated which candidates they preferred, the virtual campaign began. And to simulate a constant media cycle of election news, the subjects sat at computers and chose to read as much or as little information as they wanted about the candidates they had chosen, while a timer counted down to the end of the campaign. The the key in this particular study was that after they had time to learn about the candidates, we interrupted them. The, you know, the telephone rang essentially on the computer and they were asked to answer a polling question, which was if the election were today, for whom would you vote? And then asked to rate that candidate. Now, these phone calls, they came every few minutes. So as the campaign drug on, people's opinions were continuously sampled and charted on a graph. Between those polls, people read news stories just as they do in the real world, learning more about their candidate's history, their ongoing endorsements, or their changing positions, or just learning what their candidate has been up to since the last time they checked in. But it was up to the individual subjects how much information they read, and some read an enormous amount. Some people examined as many as 200 pieces of information in 25 minutes. But what the subjects didn't know was that when they filled out those questionnaires at the beginning of the research, the scientists took their answers and used them to create custom-generated negative news stories 
about the candidates that they had chosen. That's that's right. I mean, maybe we were a little ahead of our time, I suppose, because we were taking what we knew about our subjects and modifying the environment in which they operated based on that. You invented clickbait. I guess I should have thought of how to how to patent that or something. Um, but and and so we ultimately, as any good experiment, we have groups. We have people assigned randomly into groups. Uh, in this case how much information they get that challenges their expectations. So they're in five different groups, but they don't know they're in those groups. They've been randomly assigned and secretly assigned. And each group receives a different percentage of negative information about their candidate mixed in with their otherwise neutral news. And this negative information was designed to demonstrate that each person's preferred candidate held beliefs that didn't align perfectly with their own. For instance, a pro-choice voter might learn their candidate was pro-life. A subject who valued civility would discover her candidate was egotistical and difficult to work with. So again, like I said, there were five groups. One group got no negative news. The others got 10, 20, 40, and 80% respectively. In other words, for that 80% group, eight out of 10 of the news stories that they read painted their candidate in a personalized, poor light. The only modulating factor here was how much news each subject consumed. So they got to choose what they read. Um, within a large database of information about the candidates because we wanted to to mimic the real world of politics where lots of information is out there, but nobody learns everything. So they could choose what to read, but the algorithm behind the system determined whether each piece of information would, in fact, comport with their expectations. So if it was a liberal candidate, it would be a liberal position or challenge their expectations. If they had liked a liberal candidate, that candidate suddenly took perhaps an extreme conservative position. So while they got to pick what they looked at, we modified what they looked at based on which group they were in. In the end, Redlosk had this beautiful graph that showed over time how people rated their candidates differently on a scale from 1 to 100, depending on how much negative information they had consumed over the course of the campaign. So what did they find? Well, first of all, the control group didn't change one way or the other. That's the people where they really only saw things they should essentially feel good about. But that was not true for the 10 and 20% groups. The people who had 10 or 20% of their news diet consist of negative information about their candidate. And if you've been paying attention these last two episodes, you already know what they did. You already know how the negative information affected them. It made them like their candidate even more. And that's important. They become more positive at the end than the people who saw nothing negative. Mm -hmm. But that leaves the other two groups, the ones for whom 40 or 80 percent of their available information was tailor-made to reveal that their chosen candidate held awful positions, positions with which they personally and viscerally did not agree. And there we actually see the kind of updating that rationalists would love. Those people become more negative, and they become more negative quite consistently throughout the, the time. When we went to look at the voting effects, we found those people ultimately quite regularly changing their preference mm. entirely. But not the other folks. The other folks with a little bit of negativity uh, are still perfectly happy with the candidate they started with. <laughs> they're, they're more happy. Yeah, I should say, right, they're more happy.
for those who received 10 to 20% negative info, that info backfired. And it made those people love their candidate more so than if they got no negative information at all. Red Lusk and his team thought that despite this, surely at some point, a constant flow of negative information about a chosen candidate would have to persuade people to consider their choices, to reconsider their choices. The backfire effect, they believed, must have some natural upper limit. People must have what they called an effective tipping point, a moment after which they could no longer justify ignoring an onslaught of disconfirmatory evidence. Our definition is basically the point at which people begin to adjust their updating to be more accurate. That is to go in the direction of the new information rather than in the opposite direction. If negative information never stops piling up, there must be a point at which people give in and realize they've chosen a stinker. Almost like a phase transition in chemistry where you keep aggravating the system with pressure or temperature, adding energy until suddenly it changes states. That, at least, was their hypothesis. So... What did they find? Uh, let me let me preface this by this is a laboratory experiment. It's not the real world. It's it's stylized in many respects, right? And so we have to be a little bit careful about saying what these numbers mean to the real world. But we essentially found that um, somewhere around. 14% or so negative information, challenging information, shows the effect of people actually beginning to go, hmm, maybe I should rethink this. But they don't actually become more negative than they started out until about three in ten pieces of information challenge their expectation. Why? Because initially we get the backfire effect. They become more positive. And so when they do start going, hmm, I should rethink this, they're doing it from a more positive position than they started with at the beginning. So we're not going to actually see them become more negative about the candidate until a much larger amount of information hits them. On the graph, you can clearly see this upward slope that seems to be tracking the output of the backfire effect. It steadily causes people's ratings to increase in response to that early negative info. But at the peak, what Red Lusk and his team call the effective tipping point, the backfire effect just disappears. It evaporates. And the negative information begins to create the response that you would expect, that you would hope. People begin to like their candidate less and less and less until they don't like that person at all. And the hard number from the study, it's 30%. About 30% of the news that you consume needs to be negative, needs to challenge your beliefs before you will accept that and update your model of reality in the direction of the incongruent and challenging information. Now, it's likely true that everyone has a different percentage, that we're very nuanced. Some people are much higher, some people are much lower, and this is an average. It's also true that in the study, he found that at about 14%, people become alerted to the potential threat that they might be wrong, and you can see their, their anxiety starts to rise. They start to snap to attention and begin to actively evaluate the situation at hand. This seems to activate people's active learning. They come online and prepare to respond to, as we mentioned in the first episode, a threat to their beliefs as if they were their very flesh and blood. And that continues as the negative information percentage increases from 14 to 15 to 16. 
all the way up to about 30%. And it's at that point, the backfire effect starts to disappear. But that number, 30%, not only is it probably different for every person, it's probably completely different in the real world. That 30% level was easy to reach in the conditions of this study. In the real world, there are many, many other factors that will prevent people from ingesting these giant quantities of countervailing data. You know, particularly in a world where people aren't even uh, exposing themselves to challenges, the numbers are going to be much higher, I think, in the real world than we see in the laboratory. But what we did here was prove, we think, the existence of the effect. And I think it's going to depend on the particular environment at any given time as to what it takes for the effect to happen. In the real world, people choose how much information they put into their heads. And as they start to realize that one source is more critical of their beliefs than another, they will gravitate away from it and toward news sources that tend to confirm their beliefs instead. That's just how people work. Also, people are partisan. In Red Lusk's study, he simulated a primary because in a general election, all the psychological forces that encourage us to support our tribe slash team slash party slash in-group will affect how we consume the information coming to us from the media, how we choose what to put in our brains. Also, candidates come charged with existing associations, fame, their political history, their connections, the way they look and speak and so on. All of this plays out while people communicate with one another, choosing to spend more time with like-minded people than with people who challenge them. And all of that and more, Red Losk says, will protect people from reaching their personal, effective tipping point. In the last election, for example, some estimates put the amount of negative news about Donald Trump as being 91% of his total coverage. But if you never see all that negative coverage... It doesn't affect your judgment. The problem isn't fake news or alternative facts or propaganda or bias. It's control. And that's new. People now have more control over what they put in their brains than ever before. Given the choice, people will seek confirmation over information. And I asked Red Losk, what would have to happen for negative information to break through these filter bubbles? And he said that trusted mainstream sources would have to begin to produce countervailing information and express countervailing opinions. Then it would get through and begin stacking up. But until then, people would remain trapped. Despite this, Redlock says that if anything, his study shows that people are reachable. People do have a breaking point. And if you can get the information in front of them, and enough of it, they will change their minds. But you should expect resistance, and at first, backfire. But just knowing this, just knowing that this is true of human beings, means we can begin to work against it. As you heard in our episode about Change My View, the community on Reddit, you can build better systems for delivering news to people so their predilection for confirmation doesn't work against them and doesn't work against their best interests. Well, I, you know, Part of it is knowing that this exists. I, I really do believe that if people are aware of these things, it isn't that we can override it entirely. We can't. I, I don't care how expert you are. I don't care how intentional you are. You know, there are processes here that are happening that we, we don't actively control. But being aware of those processes helps. 
Um, and that requires ultimately um, intentionally exposing yourself to a, a range of, of facts and opinions and information in ways that we don't seem as inclined to do these days. Um, but I don't think that's, I don't think it's impossible. I, I do actually think people change their mind. There's data that shows people change their mind. Look at public opinion polling. It isn't always a flat line. Um, but I will say I think it depends, and this is either good or bad depending on your position on it, but it depends a lot on elites. It really does, at least in our system. At the moment, if we have elites who are uh, uh, unwilling to challenge their own side, on either side, then we're locked in, at least for the time being. I think to the extent that, uh, you know, back to the idea, and, and Brendan Nyan has said this, and others have said this, you know, partisanship is a powerful drug. You know, it's the lens through which we view politics, and it influences what we think is happening. Red Losk said at the macro level, at the level of cultures and nations, Partisan elites must step up if there's any hope to squash misinformation. At the individual level, though, with friends and family and people you meet on the Internet, his advice is a lot more optimistic. Um, you keep talking as hard as it is. Um, you, you do bring facts even if they're rejected. I think ultimately we still have to go back to facts. But a lot of politics isn't about facts. It's about feeling. It's about, you know, what you like. It's opinion. You know, is Obamacare good or bad? Well, you can marshal facts on either side, depending on which facts you want to talk about. So I think when it comes down to talking to friends and family, you really simply have to keep engaging and just keep talking. It's very hard. It's very uncomfortable. But and it raises a lot of anxiety, but at least in, in our studies and in some other studies, raising that anxiety is what sometimes opens people up to change. After this commercial break, our final segment, how to avoid the backfire effect, how to prevent it, how to correct misinformation and debunk myths without activating the backfire effect. All that after this break.
This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. As the year progresses, it's easy for some of those New Year's resolutions to fall by the wayside. But if you've resolved to take on a new challenge like starting a business or changing careers or launching a creative project, achieving your goals might be easier than you think with Squarespace. Squarespace is used by a wide range of people and businesses, including musicians, designers, artists, and restaurants. And it gives you the ability to create an online platform from which you can easily make your next move into a reality. With Squarespace's award-winning templates, creating your website is a simple, intuitive process. You can add and arrange your content and features with the click of a mouse, and there's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade, ever. Though, if you do have a question, Squarespace provides award-winning 24-7 customer support, and you can get help with any problem, no matter how technical or trivial, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. So whether you need a landing page, a beautiful gallery, a professional blog, or an online store, tackle your next move with Squarespace. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter the offer code SOSMART to get 10% off of your first purchase, and you get a free domain. That's SOSMART for 10% off of your first purchase. Squarespace. Make your next move. Make your next website. We now return to our program. And now, our final segment. As I mentioned in the beginning of the show, a few years ago, social scientist Stephen Lewandowski and his colleague John Cook noticed that climate scientists and vaccine researchers were both having problems effectively communicating with the public. They noticed that these scientists, they were committing the same mistakes that people in the media often commit when attempting to address misinformation and myths and, well, outright lies. Specifically, they were causing the backfire effect. They were doing more harm than good, and they were doing this left and right. In response to this problem, Lewandowski and Cook wrote The Debunking Handbook. It's an attempt to take what we've learned in psychology and political science for decades now and hand that knowledge over to, and I'm making quotation marks my fingers in the air, the quote-unquote hard sciences. And I'm doing that because, well, as the backfire effect demonstrates, physics may subsume all the other sciences, that's true, including psychology, but psychology subsumes physicists. The debunking handbook begins by asking scientists to abandon something, to abandon something called the information deficit model. Well, the information deficit model basically means that, you know, if people have difficulty accepting a scientific proposition, that's because they just don't know enough. <laughs> I love that. As you may have noticed, we were having some issues with Stephen's microphone, so I'll be doing a lot of paraphrasing during all of this, so please forgive his uh, audio quality. But yes, the information deficit model is this idea that people simply don't have all the facts yet, or at least not enough of them, and you do. And so this is why people who are wrong maintain a false belief or accept as fact a piece of misinformation. Moon landing deniers, 9-11 truthers, Obama birthers, vaccine deniers, Pizzagate conspiracy theorists, climate change deniers, people who believe in 
homeopathy and cleanses and that there's still a operating secret Nazi space station or that you can live on air alone. And those last two are real, by the way. The air thing, it's called breath Aryanism. Anyway, the idea is that if you just dump a bunch of facts at the feet of these people who have these misconceptions or have faulty information or who just believe things that aren't true, these facts will just sort of break a wrongness spell. If only you gave them more information, then they would see the light and bingo, everybody is happy. The mistake here, Lewandowski says, is it's not what people think that matters, but how they think. It's not that they don't know, it's they refuse to know. The information that you're presenting is terrifying or challenging to who they are, to what they think they are, to their world view. And that is one of several different variations of the backfire effect that he identifies in the debunking handbook. This one is called the worldview backfire effect. Uh, so if you don't believe the Earth is round, then the information deficit model says, well, that's because you just don't know what the evidence is. And let me now, you know, tell you why the, the Earth is round. And then you're supposed to update your beliefs and say, ah, now I know, and switch to this more accurate representation of the world. Lewandowski says that this sort of updating of existing models and replacing them when better ones come along is, of course, vital for a functioning democracy, and it's the essential business of science itself. But individuals always resist this, and as David Redlosk explained in the previous segment, with his virtual presidential primary, that resistance has a breaking point. But before you reach it, challenges often backfire. And in many circumstances, in many situations, the information deficit model just fails completely. If you recall, this was the topic in our second episode in the series. Once information has become interwoven with a person's personal identity, cultural identity, or fundamental worldview... Threatening that information raises alarms about the decoherence of the entire model of reality they use to make sense of everything. Even if it's not their entire model of reality, it could be some small model, and they have a commitment, a motivation to not believe you, to protect it. Or as Steinbeck wrote, Sometimes a man wants to be stupid. If it lets him do a thing, his cleverness forbids. Now, the easiest example, I guess, is that of of, uh, smoking. If you're a chain smoker and you're addicted to nicotine... Well, you really don't want to hear that this is going to kill you. So um, it is understandable if somebody says, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, you know, the doctors are saying this, but actually, you know, they're saying it because they want to make money and the federal government is paying them to do this. And it's all hippies or socialists or regulations or whatever, you know. Lewandowski has several pieces of advice for dealing with the worldview backfire effect. First of all, he says, if you can. Avoid arguing with people on the fringes. Those are the people for whom maintaining a misperception might be so fundamental to their core beliefs that you're guaranteed a long and difficult battle. And that's not to say it's impossible to reach them. It's just that that same effort could instead be directed toward the undecided, toward the persuadable, who in many issues make up a larger portion of the population. Changing their minds will push the fringes into an even narrower slot in the distribution of ideas making the influence of the fringes less of a concern on issues facing large groups. But here's the thing. As the Leadership Lab's field organizer, Steve DeLine, told me in our episode about deep canvassing, even among the persuadable, 
you must treat each conversation as an attempt for you and the other person to solve a mystery together and not as an attempt to change the other person's mind. If, if you walk up to somebody and say, hey, I'm going to change your mind, guess what? They're going to say, whoa, 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 <laughs> hang on, no way. But if you walk up to people and effectively say the opposite, you say, look, I don't want to change your mind. I don't care what you think. I think what you're thinking is just great. However, here's a couple of other things you might want to consider. Well, that's a completely different approach. That, that makes people more uh, susceptible to, to, to listening to you. If you do happen to find yourself dealing with someone who is deeply entrenched, Stephen says reframing the message is key. Research shows that using words like carbon offset instead of carbon tax greatly improves the chances of a successful persuasion attempt. You may have noticed that people on both sides employ this tactic already, using phrases like death tax or death panels, words already charged with emotional associations that can be used to encourage the backfire effect as much as they can be used to avoid it. And his third piece of advice is to do what groups like the Nudge Unit do in the UK, which is to not worry about people's worldview or belief at all. Just focus on people's behaviors instead. The research is clear that belief often follows behavior. For instance, if you want people to wash their hands a certain number of times a day while working in a restaurant, factory, or hospital, instead of spending time on training courses that are largely ineffective, the Nudge Unit recommends that employees just get a stamp at the beginning of the day on top of their hands made with a special vegetable dye that will scrub off after a certain number of washings. The places where this has been implemented in the real world not only see a massive initial increase in hand washing, but over time, the behavior becomes routine and normal, and it establishes a new belief in the importance of this practice. Many of our beliefs about what is normal and what is taboo follow from this kind of Invisible behavioral modification. Um, you don't have to convince people that smoking is dangerous. You just got to change their behavior by making it harder to smoke in public, for example. Stephen's fourth piece of advice concerning the worldview backfire effect is to try to seek self-affirmation. <laughs> as strange as this sounds, research suggests that if you ask people to consider how they have acted on their values in the past in a way that makes them feel really great about themselves— they're much less likely to reject challenges to their beliefs than people who don't get a chance to think these nice, positive thoughts about themselves beforehand. So, for example, if you take somebody who's a supporter of the free market, you can get them to relate an experience when they felt really great about these values. And then maybe they will say something like, well, I was an entrepreneur when I was 22, and... You know, I bought my first Mercedes when I was 23, and wow, that was really cool. And then you say, right, brilliant. Now, how about climate change? And if you do this right, then you can show in the laboratory that affirming people's fundamental beliefs makes them more able to process information that's challenging to those beliefs. So they feel good about who they are. And then you say, you know, well, yeah, sure, you can be uh, you know, in favor of the free market. But that doesn't mean you can't buy a solar panel or whatever. And, or that doesn't mean that there isn't climate change and that we have to deal with it, et cetera, et cetera. Now, this is not well understood. We don't know how this really works. But it seems to be a way to psychologically move the threat to identity off the table. 
um, I wouldn't go there first. If that, you know, it, it, it wouldn't harm trying this, but it wouldn't be my first port of call. My first port of call would be to just talk around the issue and change people's behavior because we're, we're dead sure that that can work. The next variation in the debunking handbook is called the familiarity backfire effect. And this is much simpler. It's a much simpler piece of advice to follow. And basically, it's just this. Don't mention the myth you're trying to bust. Only mention the truth that debunks it. People already have this misinformation inside their brains, and each new mention of it reinforces it, makes it harder to get the new information in there, harder to get that new information wired up to all the places where it can make a difference in the brain. If I tell you that the moon is made of green cheese, and I then come back to you later and I say, hey, by the way, remember how I told you that the the moon is made of green cheese? Well, actually, that's false. Then when I do that, at the time I correct the myth, I'm repeating it. And if you then later on, a week later, think about what I told you, then all you can remember green cheese, and you don't remember that I told you it was false. Lewandowski said that previous research has shown that when people read flyers debunking vaccination myths, people's ability to sort those facts from the misinformation degrades over time. Right after reading the flyers, people do well on a sorting task, but just 30 minutes later, the people who were paying the least attention believed more strongly in the misinformation than a control group that didn't read the flyer at all. What I think is crucial here is that this only occurs when people um, do not pay a lot of attention to the correction. So the takeaway is that when people are busy or distracted or tired or otherwise not fully engaged... Corrections that repeat the myth can cause more harm than good. And this brings us to our final variation of the backfire effect, something they call the overkill backfire effect. Let me, let me give you an example. Um, if somebody invites you to a party and you don't show up, um, if you then respond to that and explain it by saying, gee, you know, um, my wife was sick. I had to stay home. That's perfectly fine, right? Everybody will believe that. But if you then also say, oh, and I also had a flat tire and I couldn't make it out of the garage, then somebody may actually think, well, what's going on here? <laughs> Do I really want more than one explanation for this? Why are you giving me two? Oh, and my dog was sick as well. You know, I mean, you can... You can you could sort of make it quite clear that maybe there was a different reason why you didn't come to the party that has nothing to do with any of the above, right? Lewandowski says repeating a correction is fine, and having a strong and easy-to-understand message is fine. But overloading a person with dozens of corrections in an attempt to overwhelm them will only bolster their defenses. This is why politicians have a single soundbite, and they say it over and over again and nothing else. Now, the caveat to this is that if you're in a good faith context, like a debate or an internet community where changing your mind is the entire goal of the conversation, well, then a well-organized set of rebuttals works great. It's great. Do that. But remember, outside of those venues, the same tactic can lead to the backfire effect instead. Now, the debunking handbook, it closes with something that I think makes for a great summary of this series. Maybe the most important piece of advice you will ever hear concerning changing people's minds. And believe me, I've been writing a book about this 
this topic, changing people's minds, for a very long time now. And what I'm about to tell you, it just keeps coming up. And this is important. So let me let me have a little music cue right here. Lewandowski calls what I'm about to tell you filling the gap, but I've also heard it referred to as replacing a load-bearing wall. So you need some kind of metaphor to make sense of it. Personally, I prefer replacing the leg of a table because I like to imagine people's mental modules are sitting on tables like they have in war rooms with toy soldiers, toy tanks, you know, sticks pushing it all around. And if what you're suggesting to someone makes them think that they must give up something as fundamental as a leg of that table, then you must swoop in immediately with a new leg if you have any hope of that person accepting your proposition because they simply can't allow that whole model to fall over and collapse. If you don't do this, if even over the course of the conversation it becomes extremely obvious to a person that they're wrong, the threat of decoherence will not allow them to accept that wrongness. My favorite example of this, my absolute favorite, is this study from the early 1990s in which people read about a warehouse fire. Now, it was totally made up. It was absolute fiction. But these people, they were asked, based on what they had read in that story, what they thought might have caused the fire. Now, one group's story mentioned that there was a closet in the factory that contained paint cans and gas cylinders. Now, the other group, though, they read that story and it didn't say there was anything in that closet. It actually said that that closet was empty. Later on in the story, if it had mentioned those cans and cylinders, there was a correction, and that correction stated that they had been incorrect. There was a mistake. The closet was, in fact, empty. When scientists asked the subjects in these two different groups why they thought the fire produced a great deal of smoke, the people who read about the full closet that they later learned was empty, still cited those non-existent paint cans as the cause. Except there was no oil paint, because the cupboard was actually empty. Some even said that the stuff in the closet caused the entire fire, not just the smoke. What they don't say is, I don't know. They can tell us that they know it's wrong, but it's much, much harder for them to, to actually fix their situation model. Because how do you represent the event now when all of a sudden a key causal piece of information is gone? And of course, the people in the other group who never heard the misinformation, they had other ideas about the cause. And, you know, they never mentioned paint cans because why would you? It's an odd item to conjure up. But here's one of the most amazing things I have ever learned in psychology. When you add a third group to this experiment and you give them that same correction, yes, I know I told you the closet had paint cans in it, but actually that turned out not to be true. But you also tell them that there was a room containing lighter fluid and old rags. People never mention the paint cans. Never again. They easily, freely, and without resistance give up that misinformation and replace it with the better explanation instead. 
In the study, the authors say that once a person has created a causal narrative out of their logical inferences, that narrative will resist any change that threatens to cause the whole thing to fall apart. Even if that means keeping the inferences that they know (laughs) are indefensible. So what we find generally is that when we correct a story that people say, oh yeah, I know, you corrected this, you told me the, the cabinet was empty, yeah, 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 I know that. But then when we ask them to make use of the information, they're referring to stuff that they know is false, and they rely on this misinformation. And this is called the continued influence effect, uh, effect and it is pervasive. Lewandowski and Cook, in the handbook, when they're commenting on this, they say, quote, people prefer an incorrect model over an incomplete model. In the absence of a better explanation, they opt for the wrong explanation. And that reminds me of this great quote by Bertrand Russell. And he said, man is a credulous animal and must believe something. In the absence of good grounds for belief, he will be satisfied with bad ones. I mean, we have shown this in countless experiments and studies with, with you know, subjects around the world, and there's absolutely no question that this is what happens. People continue to rely on information even after we tell them it's false. What makes the Warehouse Fire study so illuminating for me is that it is absolutely apolitical, devoid of all those confounding variables that come with our most deeply held beliefs. And people have only held these beliefs in the study concerning that story for half an hour. And it's just a story. It's fiction. And they know it. Yet, here they are, defending this erroneous belief, citing misinformation they know has just been debunked. And to me, this reveals so much about the underlying mechanisms behind motivated reasoning, selective skepticism, confirmation bias, disconfirmation bias, attitude bolstering, models of reality, and all those things that blend into the backfire effect. And the lesson, I think, is this. When correcting people, never leave that gap. If you set out to bust people's myths, big or small, without a plan, a really good, well-thought-out, informed-by-social-science plan that takes into account emotions and politics and everything else, if you don't have that plan for simultaneously replacing those myths that you're about to remove, you will do more harm than good. Here are some final thoughts about the backfire effect from some of the previous guests in this series. First up, Peter Ditto. What social media does and its incredible diversity, being able to you know, have any kind of information out there, it provides grist for a motivated cognitive mill. David Redlosk. I think in the you know in the kind of world we're in today, it it definitely is is a challenge. It's definitely a problem that we process information this way. That our you know already held beliefs basically end up um, conditioning what we're willing to learn. Jason Reifler. Misinformation once it's out there is really hard to correct and to undo all the damage. So to the extent that we're thinking about large problems um, like this, that one of the key parts of the, of the solution is trying to limit the spread of misinformation um, in the first place. And that's going to do 
a lot more than that's going to be a lot easier to uh, easier is not the right word preventing the problem well not easy is where a lot of our efforts um, should be directed because fixing the problem once the misinformation out there is just um, hair pullingly frustratingly difficult so if you want to convince yourself that you know vaccines are uh, bad and, and lead to autism, you can find information like that on the internet. You can search and you can find uh, places that seem like credible people saying things like that. If you want to find an alternative, if you want to find that uh, they aren't bad for you, that they're fine, you can find that as well. And so people will, you know, g- given that kind of informational smorgasbord, Right. They'll pick the things that they, you know, that they're taking to attend. This process of motivated skepticism is going to lead them to be more likely to accept the things that, that are consistent with what they want to believe than inconsistent. And so the Internet just provides the ability to do this. These are processes that just happen when we're not even aware of them. I mean, there's some evidence that if we become aware of them, if we are intentional about it, and, uh, you know, the idea, for example, of being motivated towards accuracy rather than maintaining evaluations, we can overcome some of this. But I think from a, 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 you know, sort of humans living in the world, uh, you know, we're living in a world that we're not evolutionarily adapted to, right? In the sense that, um, you know, the world we're in has arisen in, you know, well, in a blink of an eye evolutionarily. Brendan Nyan. Well, there's definitely better ways to, uh, to approach how you present information. Challenging people's preconceptions directly um, may not be an effective approach. Factual and scientific information may not be an effective approach. It, there may be formats to present the information that are more effective. Uh, we found some evidence in the political domain that graphical information might be more effective than textual information. It may also matter who the source of the information is. A trusted source may be more effective than a public health agency or a journalist. So we, for instance, encourage journalists to reach out to sources who are willing to speak across partisan lines. There's a story I like a lot about the death panel myth that made sure to emphasize uh, the uh, statement of a Republican uh, health official Uh, who said she was not in favor of the Affordable Care Act, but nonetheless, she wanted to be clear that there were no death panels in that legislation. That's someone who can speak more credibly to the folks who might be more likely to to hold that particular belief. Uh, And and similar similar, uh, principles can be applied in the vaccine debate. Doctors, uh, your family's pediatrician is uh, likely to be a more trusted source of information about vaccines than a public health agency. And so those, uh, those parents who are unwilling to listen to this information might be more persuaded if they heard it from someone who's been taking care of their, their child since they were very young. Stephen Lewandowski. None of this has anything to do with intelligence or education. In fact, there's evidence that the polarization surrounding climate change increases with people's level of education. So that more educated Democrats are more concerned about global warming than 
lesser educated Democrats. And the exact reverse is true for Republicans. So highly educated Republicans are far more likely to deny climate change than other Republicans who, who've only been to high school. In fact, the difference between Democrats and Republicans at the lower end of education isn't that great when it comes to climate change. It is only at the higher upper end where you have this extreme polarization. And I think that's because smart people are better able to generate counter-arguments to, to evidence they don't like. And then just the last, the last thing I would say is I, I want to be careful not to blame the victim here. We're all human beings who resist being told that we're wrong. Uh, I do it, you do it, we all do it. It's very difficult to be open-minded when our identities or values or beliefs are at stake. And so I think it's important to be respectful of people and to think about how we can create conditions where people can come to more accurate beliefs and where, uh, as a society, we can have a, a, a better debate. And one way to do that is to change the incentives for the elites who promote this misinformation in the first place. They're the ones often who are driving these beliefs into public view and and you know because of the what the what the research suggests is that once these myths are out there they're very difficult to roll back. So we should think about how to change the incentives so that there are fewer of them out there in the first place. putting this series together for you. And some of you might not know that this show has no staff. It's just me and my wife, Amanda, who make this show. So if you've gotten some value out of this series or any of the episodes before it, you can support what we're doing and help us to add a staff by heading to Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash you are not so smart. Patrons get the show ad-free and they get extras. For instance, in this series, I had more than an hour of material I had to cut that will go into an extra episode just for patrons. Also, these three episodes and about a dozen others before them have been a kind of preview, sort of pre-excerpts of my upcoming book coming out later this year, which explores these topics, how minds do and don't change, both in individuals and in groups like cultures and nations. You'll hear more about all of that in a few months. Also, if I can plug one more thing here, I'm already booking some upcoming lectures discussing what I've learned these last two years, researching and interviewing people for this book. If you would like me to come speak in front of your organization about these topics, you can just email me. All my contact info is at youarenotsosmart.com. I'll have the debunking handbook and other items and links related to this show and the whole series, including contact information for all the guests, also over at the website, which again is youarenotsosmart.com.
That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For more great podcasts like this one, go to boingboingpodcasts.com. For all the previous episodes, go to youarenotsosmart.com or iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, or come on, just wherever you get podcasts. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. The interstitial music has been a couple of different things. This is Banjo Apocalypse. Earlier, that was Mogwai. Earlier, that was uh, a group called Espanto. And before that, that was Drew Garraway. You can keep up with us on Twitter at NotSmartBlog or me at David McRaney and also Facebook. There's a lot of people there. It's just slash you are not so smart. Oh, yeah. Email cookie recipes to me at David at you are not so smart.com. Two weeks from now, an episode about progress. Is it something that's inevitable or did we invent it? And what happens if, uh, you know, if we take our hand off the teal? See you then. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.